morning and welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic show for you all today. Uh, when Ryan is in this chair, he usually does these kinds of sarcastic, like we have a perfectly adequate show for you today kind of thing. So maybe I'll start doing that. <laughs> Look, well, it's more than adequate today. There we go. Yes. <laughs> we have President Biden ditching Putin's price hike for ultra MAGA Republicans. We'll get into that new slogan with our panel. Plus, we'll dig into data from 2008, 2022 that breaks down how working class voters have drifted away from politics altogether, while more affluent voters have increased their sway toward the Democratic Party. And progressive congressional candidate Amy Vilela discusses her run for Nevada's first district. But first, social media lit up yesterday after Elon Musk gave a lengthy interview with respect to former President Trump's Twitter ban. Trump is obviously permanently banned from Twitter at the moment. Financial Times' Peter Campbell asked Musk the big question, and let's watch the first part of his response. Are you planning to let Donald Trump back on? Well, I, I think there's, there's a general question of should was Twitter have permanent bans? Um, and, you know, I've, I've talked with Jack Dorsey about this, and uh, he and I are of the same mind, which is that uh, permanent bans should be uh, extremely rare and really reserved for... Uh, people where they're trying to, uh, for, for accounts that are uh, bots or uh, spam scam accounts, uh, where there's just no legitimacy to the account at all. Um, I, I do think that uh, uh, it was not correct to ban Donald Trump. I think that was, that was a mistake um, because it, uh, it alienated a large part of the country and did not ultimately result in Donald Trump not having a voice. He is now going to be on Truth Social, um, as will uh, a large part of the sort of the, the right in the in the United States. Um, and so, I think this could end up being frankly worse than having a sing, you know a single forum where everyone can debate. Um, so, um, I guess the answer is that I I I would reverse the perma ban. I will say I'm not. I don't own Twitter yet, so this is not like a thing that will definitely happen, because what if I don't own Twitter? Um, but my opinion, and Jack Dorsey, I want to be clear, shares this opinion, uh, is that we should not have perma, perma bans. And we're going to play uh, another clip or two from that interview. Uh, he, he is representing Jack Dorsey's opinion um, correctly, because Dorsey chimed in later on Twitter and said that, he yes, he did agree that it was not a right decision to permanently... Um, take Donald Trump off the platform. What do you yeah, think? if you think that Twitter is as important a public sphere as we've all been describing it as, then a permanent lifelong ban does seem pretty draconian. I don't know how I can really square some of my views about us needing to be in a more, less punitive society mm -hmm. with a kind of permanent ban like that outside of accounts that aren't real, that are bots, that are there for the sole purpose of spamming and not adding, uh, contributing in any way to the platform. I think the other part that is frustrating about the Trump example is that the tweets that he allegedly was banned for don't necessarily seem to have any cognizable principle that supports the ban. You know, like why these tweets? And I know that it was obviously in the context of 1-6, right. but the particular tweets that were pointed to were tw one tweet that said he wasn't going to the inauguration. 
and you know one kind of generalized tweet about you know people supporting him and i think that if you're going to be instituting bans of any kind including permanent bans you'll encounter so much less pushback if there is a you know specific right. theory that gets you banned that people can anticipate and that can be applied consistently across the right. board he was clearly banned because of the attack happening on the capitol but his his tweets were not the proximate cause right. of that attack. His actual like words and right. his speech that right. he gave to people, right. I think you can draw a much more obvious uh, connecting right. kind of line. But that speech was not on Twitter. That right. speech was was legal. You might have said he should have been held morally responsible for it sure. in terms of impeachment and that kind of thing. Sure. He wasn't. Um, but it, it was not his speech on Twitter. So it it's a little a, weird yeah. for them to punish him for that. It felt a little like when someone doesn't win an Oscar for a great movie and then they just give it to them for jumping Jack Flash. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what it's like. <laughs> well, Elon went on to say that permanent bans undermine trust in Twitter as a town square where everyone can voice their opinion and offered a temporary suspension as an alternative. It was a fun, I, th I think it was a morally bad decision, to be clear. And, and foolish in the extreme. Even, even after he egged on the crowd who went to the US Capitol, some of them carrying nooses, you still think it was a mistake to remove him? I think the, if, if there are tweets that are wrong, they should, and bad, those should be uh, uh, either deleted or made invisible. Um, and a suspension, uh, a temporary suspension is appropriate, um, but not a permanent ban. And actually, I saw people kind of jumping on that quote right there to mm -hmm. say, oh, I thought he said that it's going to be a free speech platform. He's going to get rid of tweets that are wrong and bad. But that's a, with the full context of that mm -hmm. remark, I think it's pretty clear he's saying by wrong and bad, he meant tweets that would have previously been deemed against the the platform's Policy. rules yeah. that would have resulted in a permanent ban. And he's saying, well, no, maybe, you know, at, at, in the, at the least, instead of banning the person, we'll just do something about those tweets. Yeah, there does seem to be something weirdly maximalist about banning the person. If it really is about those tweets, then let's take down the insidious tweets. It kind of gives the game away that it wasn't really necessarily about those tweets. Yeah. It was about losing out right. on the it Oscar for the color purple. <laughs> it was about on the Oscar. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, so it, right, it does it does make a sense, and even uh, you know this is true on other platforms. So Zuckerberg, I think, has had some like, eh, I don't know about this permanent. So I think it's a two-year ban on mm -hmm. Facebook is what they've said, and they've mm -hmm. said after two years, um, he he might be coming back. I guess he might be back sooner if this Supreme Court of Facebook um, reaches a different decision. So Facebook, interestingly, has this, mm -hmm. this bo uh, board that can uh, make, th that can uh, overturn uh, bans, just bans. They all, this is interesting. I, I've learned this. They only weigh in when a piece of content is completely taken down. So if the piece of content is just turned down, they don't do anything. They don't weigh in. So, they, so actually, the... the um, the thing that most conservatives are most upset about, obviously involving Facebook and content moderation, is the Hunter Biden laptop story. But that wasn't taken off Facebook. Mm. Its reach was just turned down, mm. which is not a situation where the Supreme Court would, would rule in, which is an obvious issue with it that, I, that I've raised to them. But Yeah, the story is <laughs> about Facebook's 
bad influence in all of these political spheres has been coming fast and furious over the last couple of weeks or so. I think we mentioned on the show um, that Bernie, deputy campaign manager Ari Ravenhoff, recently wrote in his book that there was this meeting between the Senate campaign, uh, the Senate office and Facebook, where they basically told them that they, if he wanted to have good interaction on Facebook, if he wanted to have a lot of interaction, then they needed to just defer to Facebook around messaging issues, you know, telling a sitting senator that we are going to control your messaging basically or else no one is going to see it. And there was, you know, Bernie apparently like left the room and there was a, a, a heated exchange between staffers, Facebook staffers and Bernie staffers over this issue because you can you can see the democracy implications all of, this, of all of this, not to mention the broader implications for various groups. And I think a lot of people on the left who might be kind of snarky or smarmy about the idea of Trump getting um, ban should really contemplate what will happen if there is ever a real, genuine leftist threat to the establishment that is on Twitter and making, having a lot of outreach on Twitter and effectively communicating with the public on Twitter. Because with standards as ephemeral as these, who knows what could happen to any of us? Yeah. Well, Elon was also uh, continued to be pressed on whether Trump would be banned again if he does something similar to the January 6th uh, debacle. Here's what he said about that. He has publicly stated that he will not be coming back to Twitter um, and that he will only be on Truth Social. And this is the, the point that I'm trying to make, which is perhaps not getting across, is that, there, is that banning Trump from Twitter didn't end Trump's voice. It will amplify it among the right. And this is why it is morally wrong and flat out stupid. So, look, I thought this, on, on the whole, his remarks here were very well-considered and thought out and pretty persuasive mm -hmm. to me. Um, I, I hope everyone, you know, who is so worried in, in sort of in the mainstream media, who's, like, furious about Elon Musk buying Twitter, thinks this is going to be the end of the end of days, that he's some far-right lunatic or something. I, I hope they would watch that and see that he's thinking through these issues and he has a he has a reason for, for his thinking that it should be more of a free speech platform, one that some of the previous leadership of the company shares. You know, these, are, these, are not, this is not, these are not crazy ideas mm. to think that you know, the sitting, the former president of the United States should be able to use this, or it, it should, that if the platform thinks it's in the better interests of some kind of social goal to have people speaking, even if we don't like what they have to say, even if it causes people to react in some bad way. That really is kind of the, a fundamental sort of aspect of free speech, that we don't, that we're, we, we don't yeah. we do not fear speech. We want speech to be heard because we don't, you know, if, you're, if, you, if you think, if you're so convinced that bad speech is just like going to win, so you have to silence it at all times, that you end up having like a very... Um, pessimistic view of human nature? Yeah, well, I think that, that Musk's point about the uh, balkanization of news, where people go into their individual mm -hmm. silos and the effect of getting Trump off Twitter is that Trump is still talking, but the broader public isn't really hearing him, and that could allow certain stuff to fester that we would like to be able to con confront directly. I think that's a, a good point. However, the kind of ideological basis for, for thinking Trump should not have been banned aside I also think we have to confront the reality that taking Trump off Twitter does seem to have had an effect on how much the journalist class, the liberal journalist class that couldn't help themselves but engage with him constantly on Twitter and write 
50% of their news coverage, it seemed, on whatever Trump tweeted that day. And they're salivating ha- to have him back Has on. been kept salivating doing so. to have him back Yeah, on. his influence really was amplified right. significantly through Twitter, and that's not a reason to kick him off Twitter, but it is something for the, the media class who fed into that to really think about as they contemplate his return to, if not this medium, other similar mediums. I think that that's a fair point, but also he could... If he wanted to speak on, he, he could be on Fox every night, every every day. He could be 24 hours a day. I'm sure if he wanted uh, to talk to CNN, they, like if he wants to talk to these people, he yeah. can. It's just his preferred medium for communicating was Twitter, and they took that away from him. Mm-hmm. So then he was like, well, mm-hmm. screw you guys, I guess. His, his marble to Michelangelo. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Well, I look forward to your radar coming up next, Brianna. What's on your radar, Brianna? Why can't conservative pundits stop defending corporate elites? That's the question I'm exploring today on my radar, Robbie. And here's why. This country might be divided on a number of cultural issues, but when it comes to tax policy, we've agreed. Working people are taxed too much and elites aren't paying their fair share. 71% of voters supported raising taxes on the wealthiest 2% of Americans to pay for the Build Back Better Act. A 2020 poll showed that 64% of Americans, including a majority of Republicans, believe that the very rich should contribute an extra share of their total wealth each year to support public programs, in effect, a wealth tax. 62% of voters supported Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax. And yet, despite holding themselves out as members of the party of populism, many conservative pundits and politicos seem to disagree with their base when it comes to taxes. The reason why? It seems they're looking out for their own fat bank accounts. Listen to Fox's Brian Kilmeade misrepresent how marginal tax policy works. The other thing she she brought up is the fact that she wants people taxed as high as 80, 90 percent if you make 10 million dollars or more, or she calls them the tippy top. Mm-hmm. So that's great. If you want to find out how to tell people not to make a lot of money, you take 80% of what they make and tell them we're taking it all, and they won't do it. The, uh, the 60 or 70% rate uh, kicks in at $10 million. Everything else is progressive up to that. Makes sense. <laughs> I would also that's add, yeah, that's great. <laughs> so many tears for those $10 million earners. And did you notice that correction by Ducey there? He's right. A marginal tax rate means that the high 70% number that they were talking about only applies to money made over the large base sum. In the case of Elizabeth Warren's plan, two cents on every dollar made after your first 50 million. 50 million. But these pundits seem to think that millionaires, including many of themselves, should be the prime beneficiaries of American tax policy. Let's remember the context. Americans are working harder and producing more than they were 70 years ago, when the marginal tax rate was more than 90%. In the post-war era, the average worker-to-CEO ratio was about 30 to 1 in terms of pay. Now it's over 300 to 1. American productivity is up, but wages have not kept track. And with all of the talk of inflation and price increases, we'll be hard-pressed to find a conservative pundit who will argue that workers should simply be paid more. I'll remind you, we are in the longest period in American history without a minimum wage raise since the advent of the minimum wage in 1938. So why is no one on the right ringing the alarm bell here? Well, conservative pundits 
simply don't share your class interests, just like elite Democratic pundits don't share the interests of ordinary Americans. Just listen to this recent clip from Fox News. And then we also heard a lot of talk about fair share, paying your fair share, and a lot of people aren't paying their fair share, et cetera. Uh, it turns out, because the president released his 2021 tax forms, that, that uh, his family paid 24.6% of their income in federal taxes. Now, I pay 37%. I would much rather pay his fair share than my fair share. I mean, the point is, what are they doing? They're such hypocrites. They're, they're advising something that they don't uh, deal with at all. They're not paying their fair share, so why should anybody else? Now, I wanna say first that corporate Democrats are, of course, hypocrites when it comes to taxes. I'm not sure why Joe Biden's tax bracket appears to be relatively low despite his over $600,000 in income, but note that although the majority of Republicans support raising taxes on the rich, host David Aspen doesn't take this opportunity to argue that Biden's taxes should be higher to match his own. No, no, no. He argues that his own taxes should be lower. Love a guy making over half a million dollars painting himself as the real victim here. The mask off moment doesn't end there. It's a great point, and it's something that everyone thinks that someone else is, is taxed more than they should be, but they never say that about themselves. And, and those of us who are the conservative side, who, who are, are largely loath to raise taxes, are always cognizant of the fact that people want to be freer. They want to have opportunity. They want to be able to make their own decisions. This is not about whether something gets spent on something. I'm going to spend money on housing. I'm just going to spend it either for my own housing or through a nonprofit to be able to ensure that my community community has health has housing. I don't want the, the Department of Housing and Urban Development to have a big spending woke bureaucrat doing that housing spending on behalf of someone else with with my money. That's how we look at it. That's not the way they look at it. They just want to raise taxes across the country. <laughs> no woke bureaucracy. Let's just hope that that guy sets up a housing trust. <laughs> that guest, Russ Vote, the director of the Office of Budget and Management under Trump, he argued that people want to be freer and have opportunity. That's true. But this is but he's arguing that this is not about whether someone gets something spent on something. He embraces the vagueness to hide what he's really saying. And the reality, the reality is that whether something gets spent on something matters, if that something is housing, and you're one of the 50% of American workers who say can't afford a one-bedroom apartment. It's not very freeing to face eviction or endure a long commute or live with tons of roommates even though you work hard 40 hours plus a week. There aren't many opportunities available to you to start a business or learn a vocation if you're living hand to mouth. That's not freedom. But that must not have occurred to Russell Vaught, who built his career and his bank account lobbying for the Heritage Foundation, a Koch-funded corporatist advocacy group. 1.7 trillion in tax cuts for the rich under Trump? That's populism, apparently. Supporting the working people who make this country great, that's a punchline to these guys. Compare David Asman's defensiveness about wealthy folks like him paying his fair share to how he talks about minimum wage workers. The Apples and Googles will still be in business. But you saw President Biden the other day, he whispered, pay them more. Exactly, exactly. I mean, he, he sort of let the truth out. The reason why, one of the reasons why they're doing this, they're not dumb economically in the White House. They realize that this is making it very tough for businesses. But you saw Biden say, pay them more. The problem is, a lot of these small businesses can't pay them more. And frankly, 
Uh, minimum wage is, is more for people who have other sources of income. Either they've got two or three jobs or they're living at home. A lot of them are teenage kids. They're going to have trouble once, once these unemployment benefits are gone. Imagine the trouble that teenagers who are trying to get their first leg up in the business world manage. They're not going to be able to find jobs. Asman pretends that minimum wage workers are teenagers. A tacit admission, by the way, that these salaries are insufficient for an adult working full time. But that is, in fact, who minimum wage workers are, adults. Nearly one third of all U.S. workers make less than $15 an hour. One third. 89% of workers making less than $15 an hour are over 20 years old. 57% of single working parents make less than $15 an hour. The same folks that want to force women to bring pregnancies to term are fighting tooth and nail to prevent them from getting raises, all while complaining about their own taxes. Meanwhile, in Florida, where a Trump-supporting majority also voted in favor of a $15 minimum wage, Governor Ron DeSantis has been fighting to subvert the democratic will of the people, saying, now is not the time. Well, when is the time, DeSantis? While you've been wasting time establishing national victims of Communism Day, the residents of your state have been falling victim to the ravages of capitalism. There's a housing crisis in Florida, but all DeSantis can do is talk culture war. A local Palm Beach reporter wrote that there was a 22% rise in home prices last year, which brought the median cost of a home to nearly half a million dollars. But he wrote, Quote, you never know it by the actions of state lawmakers who wrapped up their legislative session uh, recently. Instead, they've mostly functioned as campaign operatives for Governor Ron DeSantis, fighting imaginary gay indoctrination in schools and fictitious Antifa hordes in the street, while supporting rewrites of history to make white students feel more comfortable about slavery. He goes on to write that about one in five workers in Florida are employed in 10 poverty wage jobs retail salesperson, food preparation, cashiers, waiters or waitresses, office clerks, laborers, stock clerks, janitors, restaurant cooks, and nursing assistants. These are the people real populists should be fighting for. After all, no one can keep the rain off their family's backs with a CRT-free math book. While former OMB director Russ Fott mocked the idea of spending money on housing, Americans, including Americans in red states, are the ones taking the hit. Housing costs are sky high as corporate investors gobble up real estate. In Miami, there's been an 18.8% increase in housing costs since last year. That's 22% in San Diego, 30.2% in Phoenix. Democrats are not immune from this type of mismanagement, but note these are all red cities being underserved by their local conservative governments. And who is the culprit? Megacorp real estate companies have been exploiting the COVID crisis to kick out renters and jack up prices. Real estate tycoons have benefited to the tune of billions of dollars, you guessed it, in tax breaks. And for the first time in 20 years, the Chamber of Com Commerce was nudged out of the top lobbying spot by, guess who, the National Association of Realtors. And what do you think they're spending all that money on? Well, they will tell you. <laughs> According to the National Association of Realtors' best practices for lobbyists, the top lobbying priority for the last six years has been ending the realty transfer tax. Yes, that is a small tax the municipal a municipality collects to fund affordable housing, public transit, sidewalks, parks, and schools whenever a property is sold. Despite huge profits and paying huge amounts in lobbying, uh, cutting taxes at the cost of people who live in their buildings 
is this group's priority. It should come as no surprise at this point that megacorps don't want to pay their fair share, just like apparently David Asman. The real fight is not left-right, but top-down. Asman frames this segment around Biden, punching left instead of punching up. Biden is a problem. I do think he should pay his fair share, but it is important to identify the reason why he doesn't so you don't fall in with some on the other side of the aisle who are just as bad or worse. Biden is a problem because he's bought by the same interests that motivate wealthy elites like Asman. Biden was the largest recipient of billionaire and corporate money in a crowded Democratic primary field. He is corrupt. And more often than not, he will bend to the will of the lobbyists who funded him over the people who elected him. It's important to recognize this isn't a partisan issue or even a personal one. In fact, the National Association of Realtors Best Practices makes clear that it is most effective when it is nonpartisan. As long as people keep falling for the DeSantis misdirection that tries to make an obscure law school academic discourse the enemy instead of his own failed housing policy, and the Democratic misdirection that privileges conversations about Trump, who hasn't been president in years, over its own failure to pass relief for struggling Americans will get nowhere. And they know it. So, Robbie, I really wanted to talk about this today because it's not that I don't disagree with a lot of the cultural critiques, but it is so exhausting to see both sides falling into the trap where we talk about this nonstop and never talk about the real nitty-gritty economic stuff that's going down in states like Florida. Why aren't Democrats focusing less on CRT, frankly, as a rejoinder, as a way to push back against some of the Republican entrenchment there, and instead talk about how the people who live in the state are suffering. And they're suffering so much that even though they're concerned and they support this $15 minimum wage, which the Republican legislature down there has been fighting tooth or nail ever since they, they voted for it in 2020. I mean, I have to confess, I'm not a huge fan of minimum wage policies in general, um, especially national, because $15 just, it, well, even within a state, it matters. There are a lot of places where that is wo that woefully insufficient to survive on. There are some places yes. where it's that, that gets you a lot more. It gets um, you a lot more, but places where it's woefully insufficient to, to, to survive on have much higher minimum wages, like New York. Right. Even in, in, in Bessemer, Alabama, where that initial Amazon fight went down, that was a, 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 an institution that was a factory that was paying $15 an hour, which people were attracted to in the state, but was also a place with union activism because even people in Alabama, a low-cost state, felt like that wasn't enough to live. Right. I think, but, but the, the problem, the reason people struggle with that amount of money is because the cost of everything is cost disease. Is the cost of education, mm -hmm. child care, health care, uh, it, right now, food and gas and things like that—that yeah. you know, that is an inflation problem. I, but you know, I look at so, so many of the sectors of things that have gotten so much more expensive as, as having had heavy government involvement and subsidization in. And I say, well, what are we doing wrong that it keeps getting more and more and more and more and more expensive to have basic education and healthcare when it like other other things that like. TVs have not gotten more expensive. Uh, products have not gotten more expensive. Well, I point this is Housing's reason. gotten more expensive because we put artificial limits on how many freaking houses you can build. Well, but. I don't know why you're talking about artificial limits on how many houses we can build when I just pointed to you the millions and millions of dollars that are being spent. The number one lobbying 
group in the country right now, the, big, the biggest spin is coming from these real estate companies that have bought up all of this real estate in the middle of the, of the pandemic in order to kick renters out and drive up prices. There is not a housing crisis in the country insofar as you know, empty rooms for people to rent. It's that they are being kept empty to artificially drive up prices. Is that kind of manipulation by big corporate interests not a concern? But why would you say that that's manipulation when, when the local uh, zoning commission saying, no, you can't build a building here. This little diner is a histor- is historically it's preserved. Not a, it's not an inventory We need to knock issue. that down and build giant. It is an inventory issue. It's not an inventory issue. There are more empty houses than there are homeless people in America. It's not an inventory issue. It's a cost issue where people are trying to squeeze out these enor- enormous amount of profits as I've just detailed. The cost would go down if there were more units available. Right. But there are sufficient units available for people to live in. And the fact that people aren't living them is only because they know that they can squeeze people out to make an inordinate amount of profit. These are incredibly, incredibly profitable sectors. And what they're all saying is we would rather screw over the population with the help of elected officials that are supposed to be looking out for us in order to turn marginally more profit. And at the same time, you have all of these politicos doing their work for them, saying that the enemy of the people should be the government. Not for the reason that the government isn't working for you, which is a, a right, a good reason to be oppositional to the government, but because they are, you know, not paying enough in taxes. Joe Biden deserves a great deal of criticism. Ron DeSantis deserves a great deal of criticism. But what we should be asking is for, in my humble opinion, is for our elected officials to actually stand in between us and the um, enormous. Uh, aggregations of corporate wealth and power that are trying to squeeze out the little people for marginally, marginally, marginally more profit as we earn less and as we work harder. Well, thank you, Brianna. And we'll have more rising after this. For the first time in more than 50 years, a House panel will hold an open congressional hearing about UFOs next Tuesday. The hearing will focus on a Pentagon program that was established last year after the U.S. intelligence community released a preliminary assessment on 144 reports of unidentified aerial phenomena since 2004 and could only explain one of them. Hmm. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff said the hearing would give the public an opportunity to hear directly from subject matter experts and leaders in the intelligence community on one of the greatest mysteries of our time and to break the cycle of excessive secrecy and speculation around truth and transparency. And that's good. We don't want excessive secrecy. Truth and transparency are good. I'm glad we're having these hearings, and we'll, I'll be excited to see what we'll find out. I doubt that we'll learn anything <laughs> particularly interesting. Yeah. Um, I look, love to be wrong. There were activists that rallied to get hearings on important subjects like Medicare for All last year. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad we're doing this instead. Oh, well, it's, look, Congress can do all sorts of things at one it time, could, right? It it's can, it's fine to hold hearings on multiple things. I mean, if you think there's not going to be some big reveal about little green men, why do you think that this is this is coming up now? What do you mean? You know, why why do this hearing now? Do you think there's any? Is it some people think these kinds of hearings are like a distraction technique? They want to control a little bit of a media cycle. They want to drop something and hide it under the excitement of. Uh, the, the Men in Black review? I don't, yeah, I don't think they're trying to do any of that. I think they're just finally out of excuses to not have hearings about this stuff. Right, the, the, uh, the revelations that enough, um, what is it, it's the, it's the pilot, or it's the, it's the ship scene. I, we, we had a guest on who explained the diff, that 
it, it's and I can't remember if it's more often the Navy or it's the Air Force mm -hmm. reporting things that they can't explain. It's one or the other. There are enough um, uh, people in those roles who have seen things they can't explain. Now, seeing things you can't explain does not oh, mean aliens. aliens. So is the concern that there is you know, a security threat or something like that that's going on? Could be on? Russian stuff, could be Chinese stuff. So, you know, let's, let's find out. Um, let's have these hearings, but. And does this story bear any relationship to the story I read a couple of days ago uh, about us sending projecting images <laughs> of nude yeah, this humans. Was, I don't know if uh, if you the viewers uh, heard this headline that we were going to be sending porn into space. All right, that feels like an overstatement of what. Well, and in fact, happening. it was. Uh, I, I googled, uh, "Are we sending our nudes into space?" Which was something that could get some pretty scary results, probably. <laughs> the first result is from Snopes, the fact-checking website that says, "No, NASA does not plan to send nude pics into space." But CNN says researchers do want to send nude illustrations of humans into space. And I think the illustrations are much, 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 much tamer yeah. than uh, the year. You pulled it up. I pulled it screen. up. They, they look, it's fine. It's like a cartoon character, which also does kind of beg the question, if they weren't nude, how are they going to dress these people for aliens in space? Uh -oh. I can see the logic of saying, okay, I don't want to be responsible for sending, you know, some unfashionable person in capris into space, and so let's just keep them nude. If you dressed one in uh, <laughs> as a boy and one as a girl, were you going to risk the ire of the They're naked, Bobby. I don't think they're really the hiding the ball there. We have not sorted bigger. out all sorts of, right, there's some controversy over all right. biological issues. I, don't, I, don't, I just don't want to confuse our eventual alien overlords. Well, they made, they made them nude for you, so there will be no confusion <laughs> whatsoever, Don't say it like that. <laughs> it's just, it, you know, it's, it's a fun, fun subject to talk about, but it, 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 in reality, even if we're not, you know, going to learn anything about aliens, which again, I highly doubt, uh, our, our government should not, like, keep information from the people for no reason. Um, if there's, if, if they're, if they cannot explain what a, a large number of, you know, unidentified flying objects are, well, they should just tell us that. It doesn't mean the explanation is a crazy explanation if there's no explanation, but they can be honest about that. So I'm, I'm always happy to have hearings on this subject or really any other subject. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, up next, Biden called out the ultra MAGA within the Republican Party, and we'll discuss that with our rising panel. Stay tuned. While delivering remarks on inflation yesterday, President Biden gave his new slogan a twirl. Take a listen. In a sense, I never expected, let me say, let me say this carefully, I never expected the ultra-MAGA Republicans who seem to control the Republican Party now to have been able to control the Republican Party. I, I never anticipated that happening. If Putin's price hike didn't stick for you, ultra-MAGA Republican just might. According to White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, adding an ultra to MAGA Republican gives it a little pop and is the president's new phrase. So who are the ultra-MAGA Republicans? Is it all Republicans? Here's Psaki breaking that down. So then who is an ultra-MAGA Republican? I would say people who support 
that portion of the Republican agenda. So Rob Portman, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney, would they be ultra mega Republican? They can all make their own choices, uh, Ed, and I can we can let others evaluate that. But I would say that the president's view is those who support a plan by Rick Scott, by Chairman Scott, that would raise taxes on 75 million Americans and get rid of, sunset, eliminate, whatever you want to call it, Medicare and Social Security, that's a MAGA uh, position. And that includes the chairman of the Republican National Committee. That's a MAGA position. That is the chairman of the party. So that's what the president considers. But also, obviously, given two-thirds of the American people, according to a Fox News poll, uh, believe that women's, that Roe v. Wade should be protected, if you're on the other side of that, you're supporting an ultra-MAGA position in the president's view. So we'll let, we don't need to name-call individuals unless they have positions that are aligned with what he feels is the ultra-MAGA wing of the party. Later in the day, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was caught using the phrase at least seven times when discussing what Republicans would do if the Supreme Court overrules Roe v. Wade, according to NBC. Strategic political consultant and contributor at NBS Strategies, Nicole Brenner-Schmitz, and Republican strategist Malik Abdul join us to discuss. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. So, like, it seems to me that Democrats have been trying to bifurcate the Republican Party and pretend that the Trump movement is an isolated, discrete event and shame the rest of the Republican Party out of subscribing to, quote unquote, Trumpism, MAGA Trumpism, whatever we're calling it this week. But ultra MAGA, <laughs> ultra MAGA Trumpism. But it seems to me the the endurance of this movement and the the fact that more of these figures continue to emerge and more people seem to be adhering to this you know way of doing politics seems to belie that that presumption. What do you make of the Democrats' understanding of what's going on in the Republican Party? I think it's really really sad. Um, you can tell, so from Jen Psaki, the answer that she gave, essentially, if we were going to be honest, a MAGA, oh, I'm sorry, an ultra MAGA <laughs> Republican includes anyone who believes anything that they disagree with. The abortion debate has been happening long before we were born, long mm. before any of us started doing media, but somehow that is now an ultra MAGA position. So they've replaced what we typically hear in media about right winger and things like that. That no longer sells. So the idea of ultra MAGA, attaching it to MAGA, I mean, it, it, so many people have so many different positions within the Republican Party. And I get the whole MAGA component. I'm one of those who would wear MAGA hats myself, but I'm pretty sure for Saki and many others, I would be considered a MAGA Republican. It's almost like they sit in a room and they talk amongst themselves about whether or not this stuff is sexy. It, it reminds me of when they decided to um, kneel on the House floor in kente cloth. They talked amongst themselves and said, oh, yeah, this is actually a great idea. We should do this. But it really doesn't sell. So all of this sloganeering, the um, build back better versus human infrastructure, these are all things that they're telling themselves that this sells with the American people. But unfortunately, the American people, as we see from the polls, they just aren't buying it. Right. And clearly, they're so proud of themselves for this new label, Ultra MAGA. It's, it's, to me, it's very much a stop trying to make fetch happen uh, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, but so, uh, so, Nicole, you know, shouldn't they, if what they mean is, look, there are some crazy people in the Republican Party, if they're just trying to call out, like, I don't know, Gates and Boebert and um, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Cawthorn and Gosar and those types of people. They just say like crazy people. I don't know that they need this new highly specific language that but but that's what the Democratic Party does. Or what what do you think about this? 
Well, I don't think they're just trying to call out that that isolated bit. I think they're trying to make a point that that what seems like an isolated group of people is expanding within the party and that this is taking over and that they're not being uh, penalized or called out for these positions and this is becoming predominant in the party. I'm glad to see the Democrats taking a page out of the Republicans' book on just staying on message, all shouting the same uh, tune for once. I think that that's great. And let's not forget that somehow in 2020, every Democrat was a socialist, according to the Republicans. Okay. So taking these extreme titles and and slapping them on an entire party that in the Democratic Party too, a diverse amount of opinions from the really, really progressives of the squad all the way to the blue dogs in the moderate center. Everybody was called a socialist for a long time there in 2020. So this is political gamemanship. Both parties uh, certainly do it. And Saki's point, though, about, about abortion is is real. This is something the Democrats are going to hone in on right now, because the reality is we see what's coming down from the court. This country is a country that believes Roe v. Wade on its face should stay the law of the land. And Democrats are going to run on this all the way through November. Marxist, Leninist, socialist, communist yeah, so it, was the it, specific. It, if, if only. If, uh, Nicole, I think your first is. point was a really important one because it has to do with the difference between the, the Republican Party's relationship to its base and the Democratic Party's relationship to its base. It seems like for some years now, the Democratic Party thought that it could basically shame Republicans out of associating with the base, the, the MAGA base, and MAGA, MAGA, MAGA them into thinking, you know, rejecting Trump and getting back in line with a kind of, you know, normal, moderate Republicans of integrity that people like Nancy Pelosi were just, you know, dragged over the last two days for saying they wish had a better, stronger party. You know, there was this clip going around that said, you know, I, I remember when Republicans weren't this way. I wish that, that that strong Republican Party could return. But now there seems to be this realization. What Biden's clip really says to me is this realization that it's not an isolated event, that the Republican Party has embraced its base. I think polls that indicate that the priority for voters is electability really points to why, right? That at the end of the day, if the feeling is that that kind of ultra bag of stuff helps people win, then even more moderate Republicans will embrace it. On the other side, you have the Democratic Party mobilizing with more force to defeat leftist candidates in its own party, for example, with Senator Turner in, in, in Ohio, than it does to mobilize its own base to actually come out and help it defeat Republicans. Do you, does that kind of dynamic resonate with you? And why do you think the Democratic Party seems to not be taking a page out of the Republicans' book at this moment? The Democrats are focused on getting things done. So they're certainly focused on embracing candidates in races that they think are going to come to Congress or go to the state legislatures and pass what we talked about on the campaign. What we have to remember is Joe Biden did win in 2020. He beat Donald Trump. He talked a lot about the policies he wanted to get done. Nothing that has been introduced has been a secret or a surprise that the administration or Congress is trying to move. These are things that we discussed with the American people, we put to them as votes, and they supported it. So that is what the, the Democratic Party is trying to get but, past. But, but Nicole, I have to ask we, you. We saw last night in West Virginia, the Republicans reject this. They had a moderate in David McKinley. They have an ultra mega, I'll use the president's word, and Alex Mooney, who's not even from West Virginia. And he handily beat David McKinley, someone who basically they just beat up because sometimes he votes for things like an infrastructure package, which is something the American people want to see and will grow our economy. So, Nicole, I have to push back against the idea that it's the moderates, as you described, I will call them conservative Democrats, that want to get things done. We have the Democratic Party campaigning for and supporting candidates like Joe Manchin, 
and saying that they wouldn't um, uh, uh, support a, a challenge to candidates like Kirsten Sinema, even though it is those conservative Democrats that have been holding up the president's agenda, not any squad members. And isn't that, isn't that framing exactly what's going on with the Democratic Party, that there is an embrace of the people who are obstacles to Democratic Party progress, at the same time that there is ignoring the people in the Democratic Party who are actually holding up the agenda. That's not what's happening on, on the right, uh, Malik. Do you think that's, that's accurate? Yeah, this is for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I, I think that there are some distinctions to be made. The whole idea, and that's why I mentioned earlier, the entire thing of sloganeering. I think the problem really for me, and it's not that Republicans support, um, that there are the ultra MAGA Republicans who don't support things that other Republicans support. And I think that does exist on the Democratic side. And I don't think that the Democratic Party itself, if it were really interested and really committed to doing all of the things that were mentioned as far as what they were talking about in the campaign, pain, then there's something that they actually could do. It is the to eliminate the filibuster. Mm -hmm. Republicans actually aren't blocking Democrats from doing that. Mm -hmm. They can do that on their own. And so I think that's one of those things. I don't agree with it because I think that if you do eliminate the filibuster, it is a 100% certainty that Republicans at some point, whether it's 2022 or 2024, Republicans will return to power and they will be able to utilize those same tools that Democrats did with eliminating the filibuster. But I think for me personally, the constant, and this is an extension of the insult that Hillary Clinton made in 2016 when she talked about the basket of deplorables. Well, fast forward to 2022. Now we have the ultra MAGA Republicans. It's supposed to trigger us into thinking something the absolute worst about the Republican Party on things that Democrats themselves, even conservative, more moderate Democrats themselves, even agree with. But the intent is to insult us into an election cycle. And I just don't think that that's going to work when you're talking about the American people. Malik and Nicole, thank you so much. Thanks thank for having you. me. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Writer Matthew Thomas chronicles the shift of working class voters leaving the Democratic Party from 2008 to 2020, but notes that Team Blue captured more of America's affluent voters than ever before. In this example, you can see the distribution of votes in Democratic presidential primaries in 2008 versus 2002. Counties where the median household income is under 60000 a year went from contributing 35% of the vote in 2008 to just 28% in 2020. Did I say that wrong in the... Uh, can you go... It said 2002. We meant 2020. In the earlier... Right. Go back. Yeah. There. Oh, was that? It was two. It's 2008 versus 2002. It's 2008 versus 2020. Yeah. No catch. Yep. In this example, you can see the distribution of votes in Democratic presidential primaries in 2008 versus 2020. Counties where the median household income is under 60000 a year went from contributing 35% of the vote in 2008 to just 28% in 2020. In contrast, counties with a median household income of above 80000 increased from 24% in 2008 to 30% in 2020, with about half of that growth in counties where the median household income is above $100,000 a year. However, these trends were not uniform across every state. 
author of Vulgar Marxism newsletter, Matt Thomas, joins us now to break down the data. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you for having me. So how should we understand this? More uh, affluent people are voting, fewer, less affluent people are voting. What's driving these trends? Um, well, that's, um, I guess the trend, first of all, is both uh, more affluent people are voting as a share of the Democratic primary electorate and as an absolute number, and fewer working class people are voting as a share of the primary electorate and as an absolute number. So one the common theme that we see in, in multiple states is that where, you know, these trends are not being driven simply by the party growing in more prosperous or affluent areas, you know, just adding voters, um, there's actually, um, voters are dropping off in, in poorer areas. Uh, so for example, in Tennessee, middle-class counties went from around 30% of the vote to 38% of the vote, um, and, and the raw vote total in those counties increased by more than 50,000. Um, but counties that um, uh, are the poorest in the state went from around 65% of the vote to 55% of the vote, and the drop-off there was by more than 120,000. So we see that in certain states, um, like Virginia, for example, where there's a high concentration of affluent professionals, um, these trends have been really great for turnout because most of the population is highly educated and affluent. Um, and so there's been a huge explosion in turnout in Virginia in the Democratic presidential primary since 2008. Um, but almost everywhere else, since most states are not rich, um, uh, turnout has declined precipitously. Um, and you know, what's driving the trends? I think that there's competing explanations for that. Um, some people uh, attribute, you know, the cultural politics of uh, the liberal professional class um, as um, they say that they're toxic among voters without a college degree. I think that's true. Increasingly, you're seeing, you know, I think that these trends are most dramatic in the South. So I think that, you know, 50 years after the Southern strategy, you're still seeing non-college whites in the South moving away from the Democratic Party. Um, in Virginia, in Southwest Virginia, you know, um, 10 years ago, even if the Democrats were winning 20, 25% of the non-college white vote there, um, down there, now they're winning 10 to 15. Um, and so there's still bleed happening among non-college whites, but increasingly what we're seeing is um, non-college non-whites, um, especially um, Hispanic and Asian voters, um, a drifting rightward as well. So I think it's uh, multiple factors, but it's it's not good news for um, you know the coalition of uh, the Democratic Party uh, fr from its from the point of view of its capacity to run on a working class agenda. So, so let's say, you know, you're advising the Democratic Party. Would you say that, well, you have to, you know, you have to get back some of these voters, so you have to focus on issues they care about, working class issues. You have to be quieter or less radical on sort of the cultural issues that animate, you know, the, the highly educated, younger um, uh, kind of staffer or, or wealthy class. Or do you say, we've already lost these voters, we have to turn out more and more affluent people, we have to, you know, uh, uh, those still remaining in the Republican Party, we have to win them over, uh, you know, what is, the, what is the strategy? I mean, I think it's really difficult. One point that I make in the piece is that, you know, you have these competing explanations. Basically, you have this faction among people that would be identified as belonging to, like, the Democratic establishment or associated with more centrist politics who want the party to move to the center on culture. Um, it's kind of difficult because the party obviously, you know, at the at the commanding heights of it, there has been a huge disavowal of uh, certain kinds of left-wing cultural politics or 
uh, politics that are tagged as being related to the culture war, um, uh, especially around issues of like race and policing. Um, but there's still this huge faction within the party which pursues this kind of like, you know, social justice infused vernac um, policies, but also this kind of vernacular and aesthetic, which a lot of people find very off-putting, you know, um, that's associated with the party, even if it isn't, you know, in control of it. Um, and then you have this other faction, which basically says you need to move to the left in economics. Um, and it points out um, the party's, you know, commitment to neoliberalism really since, um, you know, post 70s, and then really, you know, coming into its own in the 90s after it actually takes power and governs as a party, uh, on a neoliberal agenda at that time, you know, as a, you know, I'm a, you know, it's called vulgar Marxism for a reason. I'm on the left. Uh, that has been my critique for a long time. Um, but a point that I make in the piece is that these trends are really deep seated. I mean, the party, I go through the, in the piece, the history of the party's pursuit of the professional class beginning in the seventies, mid seventies to today, you know, the party pursued these voters as the white working class started to move to the right in the 1960s and seventies. Um, after, our, you know, Nixon pursued the Southern strategy and after the Democratic Party became associated with, you know, civil rights in the post-60s uh, era. Um, and so this is a trend that is long in the making. These are um, trends that have been going on for decades. And I think that, you know, even if the party were to choose a strategy, an effective strategy at the moment, it would be very, it could potentially take a long time to see any returns on that, given how long they've been pursuing, you know, a more affluent demographic. Yeah, Matt, I agree with your critique of the Democratic Party abandoning the working class in pursuit of neoliberalism, but I'm curious whether or not part of the strategy has to be, you know, re revealing the extent to which the Republican Party is using these culture wars as a substitute for any, you know, working class agenda of their own, and how you go about that project when it seems like engaging in any of these culture war issues at all fuels the beast and really has you on the, the playing field, on the footing of talking about things that are not the material economic issues that could potentially motivate working class voters across the board. Yeah, and I think it, I don't know, there's something about the party, the Democrats in general, where tactically, I, you know, I think that, I don't know what it is, but they don't seem to understand that they're in the business of politics, mm -hmm. um, or they just don't have that kind of knack for I don't know, performance or the theatrics of politics, or I don't know what it, and maybe that's also a part of the sort of changing nature of the class base too. You don't have people that have that kind of retail politics, I don't know, what performance are uh, bone in them. Um, whereas you have so many of those uh, on the right, or at least it feels that way. And so I think a lot of Democrats, um, I don't know, I just think there's almost something in the air, in the water, um, on the center left um, and in the party where they're spooked by the right. They're not confident. And I also think it's maybe perhaps that they don't have a clear agenda or program that they're running on. They're just anti-Republican um, or they are, you know, they're, I mean, they're the party of the status quo. I think, unfortunately, one dynamic that we're in is that you have all the energy is on the right. Like they, for whatever reason, like feel confident, you know, they're empowered by uh, the counter-majoritarian institutions that we have in this country. Um, there's a lot of energy on uh, the far right, the reactionary right, and they really feel like they're in the driver's seat 
culturally and politically, even though they're not technically in power right now, although they will be soon. Um, and I think the Democrats just don't want that to be the case. They're the party of the status quo, they're the party of the broken institutions that we have. And and when you don't have a clear agenda or program, it's hard to sort of get that fire in your belly and to really offer people something. So I think that that really handicaps them um, when it comes to um, offering something as an alternative to people. Yeah, I like the idea that the Democrats need more country preachers and, and fewer McKinsey analysts or something doing their messaging campaign. Thank you yeah. so much for uh, joining us uh, today, Matt. Thanks, you guys. Next on Rising, Nevada candidate for Congress, Amy Vilela, de details why she believes the status quo is no longer working for the people in the state's first district. Stay tuned. Our next guest joins us from Nevada, where she is running an insurgency campaign against establishment Democrat Dina Titus for the congressional seat in the Battleborn State's first district. Amy Villela has already received endorsements from major progressive coalitions, Our Revolution and Brand New Congress, and from fellow progressive politicians Cori Bush and Nina Turner. The struggle is real. Trust me, I've lived it. Throughout my life, I have experienced the pain our broken system causes in so many ways. I grew up poor, raised by a single mother. And then, as a young single mother myself, I fought my way out of poverty for my children. I took classes at night to get through college, becoming the first in my family to earn a degree. I became an accountant and later a CFO. Just when I thought I had it all, the illusion was shattered. I was reminded that we are only as safe as the most vulnerable among us. You may have heard the story of how my daughter, Shalin, died at the hands of our profit-driven healthcare system. You may have seen me on Netflix or traveling across the country fighting for the political revolution. I never thought politics was for someone like me until I realized the political choices we make are quite literally life and death. Amy Valella, candidate for Congress, joins us now to update us on her campaign and tell us why she believes she should represent Nevada's first district. Welcome back to Rising, Amy. Thank you. It's glad to be back. Yeah, we're so glad to have you with us. You know, tell us more about about why you're running and and you know how you plan to help the you know struggling working class people all over the country right now. Well, you know, we definitely have leadership that's been complacent for far too long. And the working class really right now needs a champion, uh, someone who knows what the struggle is like and will take that lived experience with them to the halls of Congress to fight for all of us. And I am someone who knows that struggle firsthand, and I have that lived experience, and I am ready to fight and to be that champion for the working class. We see time and time again that corporations and their interests are put over the working class and the working class is struggling. We have to have people in there that have that fire within them to actually go into Congress and work around the clock to make sure that we are passing legislation that will have a true effect on the everyday lives of working class Americans. Amy, you're running against a, an establishment Democrat. And, you know, when you first ran, you mentioned the knocking down the house video. You know, there were four candidates in that video, uh, in, that, in that film, two of whom are in Congress now. You know, 
But there has been a lot of news recently about the what feels like an increasing amount of pushback that progressive candidates have gotten, not from Republicans, but from the Democratic Party, um, perhaps in response to the successes that progressive has, have had over the last few years. Uh, we just saw Nina Turner get endorsed by the Congressional Progressive Caucus in her race in, in uh, Cleveland. Um, and we saw a great deal of dark money coming in to support her opponent. Can you tell us a little bit about how the establishment Democratic Party has reacted to your race and what obstacles you're facing from your own party? You know, the, the key to all of this is is money in politics and, you know, power works to preserve itself. And that's what we're seeing. There was large amounts of money that came into uh, Senator Turner's race that ultimately, you know, was hard to overcome. We see it with uh, big oil having huge amounts of money dumped into special interest groups. And those those interest groups are also targeting me in this race. Um, you know, they do not want to lose the power they have. And that's to me is more important than actually fighting for the issues that would make a substantial change in every everyday you know, lives of people. And they wouldn't have to worry about reelection. I mean, we are at a real risk for the House to go back to the Republicans because of the lack uh, and the, the lack of enthusiasm and the lack of getting anything done and substantially done. It's almost as if they will work harder against a progressive running than against a Republican. And um, we can see that what's happening down in Texas. Uh, everyone's rallying around a Democrat that is obviously anti-pro-choice mm -hmm. um, at just at the time when we are facing the possibility of losing our right to have, to make a choice for ourselves as women. Um, and it just shows that the interest is not really in fighting for the policies that would make true change, but it's in fighting and preserving their own power and their, their donor base. So uh, and to me, that is, it's, 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 it's disgusting and gross. We have to have people in Congress that will, like I said, that have this lived experience, when you know what it's like to be homeless, when you know what it's like to do without, when you have your child die in your arms from a lack of health care. Let me tell you, the being invited to that that Christmas fundraiser or having a donor, you know, not give you their their donation really doesn't matter. Hmm. And quite honestly, the way that you keep your seat and the way that we keep this party strong is by having a base that's engaged and knows that we are there for their best interest. Then you don't have to worry about what your donor base of corporates, corporation um, backed packs feel about what you're doing. So, Amy, the, the question a lot of progressives, I think, are asking right now is if you were to be elected, how can one be, how can a progressive be effective within a party that is so hostile to progressive up and comers? The way that we've seen there has been reporting, you know, Nina Turner has intimated that she, you know, that people who once supported her in, two, in her last run, who are progressives in the Progressive Caucus, were intimidated out of supporting her and endorsing her this time around. If what you say is true, that there is more hostility, it seems sometimes, from the Democratic Party toward progressives than toward uh, Republicans. How do you hope to affect change or any kind of progressive agenda in Congress should you be elected? Well, listen, I first want to acknowledge people feeling upset and, and feeling disheartened and tired and angry. I'm angry. I'm angry every day. I've been angry for the last almost seven years, mm. um, you know, that we have have progressed very little on very important uh, legislative issues that, of course, I would love to see move much quicker. But I refuse to let them tire me out. That's what they want. They want to tire me out. And we have seen that even 
you know, new, uh, newly elected representatives like my friend Cori Bush, when they've come into office, have been able to make change. They are the ones that are pushing the president on agenda items that are very popular. They are the ones that when the rent moratorium was about to expire, sat on the, the steps of Congress. They had career politicians coming to them on the steps of Congress, and they were able to address that issue. If not uh, for a short period of time, they are still able to make movement, right? And just because we're not able to get the things in that we want right away, it doesn't mean the work stops. I am like a lot of America, other Americans tired of hearing, well, the other party has control of the house, whatever. Listen, we have the ability to continue to work and to continue to organize to around the issues that are so important to us. There is always work to be done. We need to be out organizing in our community, organizing in Washington, D.C., because it takes a lot to get these bills to the floor, let alone to get them passed. And that happens not just in D.C. It happens in our communities. It happens across the United States. The power really does lie with the people. So my message would be is not to give up hope. I don't have the luxury of waiting for the right circumstances, the right time, or even the right party to actually fight for these issues. People are dying, and I know what that feels like. I mean, my daughter is not coming back. I can't do anything to save her, but I am gonna use every moment of my life until I take my last breath to fight to make sure that other people are not going through that same enormous amount of pain, whether it's from healthcare or any other form of injustice, the fight has to continue. And remember, when we have fought for big issues like the civil rights era or the right for women to vote, these things did not happen overnight. And there was many losses and many setbacks, but we have to be filled with righteous indignation and continue to fight and press forward. Yeah. Look, given that the, you know, the Republican Party looks like it's going to really have a, a massive victory in the coming uh, cycle, if not the cycle after as well, uh, Democrats are going to find themselves, I mean, we don't know for sure, but it, you know, it's looking like considerably diminished uh, power in, in Congress, et cetera. You know, what, what does the party need to do to, to stop that, if it's even possible, or to, to inspire more you know, enthusiasm to, to get the momentum back? They need, they need to stop being beholden to their donor base and actually deliver on their promises. Election after election cycle, we see that promises are made, whether it's from immigration reform to taking care of the working class as a whole. They are not delivering. We have to deliver. We have to be bold. We have to be able to draw our lines in the sand. Republicans are very good at this. They come in, they make their demands, and they don't budge. We saw even with the Build Back Better, they caved. It was only a select group of progressives that were in there that refused to, to vote yes for the largely corporate giveaway of the infrastructure bill, unless the Build Back Better bill was passed first. And we may not have gotten everything we wanted in that bill, but we would have gotten something. And instead, we keep on giving our you know votes away instead of actually having the political courage and willpower to actually fight for the legislation that we keep promising, you know, cycle after cycle. That if they would just deliver on what they promise and actually start passing some of these really popular uh, legislation and actually truly fighting for things like Medicare for All, a Green New Deal. These things are popular across party lines. Uh, that would make a huge difference in the outcome of the election. Yeah. Well, Amy Valella, candidate for Congress from Nevada, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
pleasure's ours. We'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. This week, Biden's disinformation governance board czar, Nina Yankovich, gave a glimpse at what the new agency plans to do on Twitter. Take a listen. Um, and I am eligible for it because I'm verified. But there are a lot of people who shouldn't be verified who aren't, you know, legit, in my opinion. I mean, they are real people, but they're not um, trustworthy. Anyway, so verified people can um, essentially start to edit Twitter the, the same sort of way that Wikipedia is. So they can add context to certain tweets. Um, so just as an easy example, not from any political standpoint, if President Trump were still on Twitter and tweeted a claim about voter fraud, someone could add context from one of the 60 lawsuits uh, that went through the court or uh, something that an election official in one of the states said, perhaps your own secretary of state uh, <laughs> and, and his news conferences, something like that, adding context so that people um, have a fuller picture rather than just an individual claim on a tweet. Yeah, I mean, if that isn't just the exact statement of the censorship that she would seek to bring. Now, I'm a little um, unclear exactly what she's talking about. There's no, you can't edit other people's tweets. Is she saying is she, saying she would seek the power or she would like to have the power to edit other people's tweets? I think it seems like this is a policy that might be coming down the pike, that verified Twitter users. From Twitter? But she's, you know, she's not part of Twitter. <laughs> I mean, the idea of verified Twitter users having the unique ability to add context to tweets does strike me as not great policy just because there are so many. I mean, yeah. Twitter verification doesn't mean anything about your integrity as a, a commentator. It's, it just does just mean that you're a real person. I am who I say I am, unlike how I believe Wikipedia works, where it is your kind of behavior on the site and your your like pattern of adding good content to pages that gets right. you the credentials to keep doing so. Right. Yes, I agree. So what I think she was probably referring to, but was kind of butchering what it actually is, is a program Twitter has in sort of pilot mode right now called Birdwatch, mm. where uh, right now it's only people who are part of Birdwatch. But the idea is to expand it, I think, to everyone, to all Twitter users, not just blue check marks. Mm. Anyone can You can't edit a t somebody else's tweet. Obviously, that would be insane. But what you can do is post a kind of special reply, like a flat, like you can fact check, but but... What's good about it is instead of the site or its designated fact checkers, like on Facebook, the fact checking is done by these designated activist groups that are terrible. Uh, the idea would be just anyone can add a fact check and say, no, this isn't true. Or, or you can add a, this is true. And this is, your feedback can be, this is a good tweet for this reason. Well, who's fact and then people, those people? But then, so then you can do it to them too. So it could just be this endless. Isn't that just Twitter? <laughs> that, yes, but in a more, it is basically what Twitter is. But anyway, I, if that will appease people in sort of like liberal or, me, or progressive media circles, be like, oh, disinformation is just out there everywhere. We can say, well, no, see this, it's being fact there it, It's more democratic and more open to all in a way somewhat similar to what goes on with Wikipedia, which, and I, I know there's a lot of, uh, I've, I've argued with people about this, that there is certainly some bias in Wikipedia. In my estimation, Wikimedia, Wikipedia, to the extent it's a social media site, does a better job of maintaining a base of, of 
fairly accurate, not universally accurate. Obviously, things can be wrong for periods of time, but it is self-correcting because it is a decentralized mm -hmm. user-based thing where anyone can do edits, can make changes, but then those get overruled by others, and it's democratic, and it's accountable, and it seems to work better. And, and, and Twitter, so what this policy is, is I think closer to that, and to my mind, a vast improvement over like when Twitter itself is just a petting, no, hiding content or saying, oh, we think this content is might be false or something. Or what Facebook does, which, again, cedes all power to a handful of just insane leftist activist groups on climate issues and COVID issues. Right. Um, they have essentially okay, libeled so, me on numerous occasions. As we've but. discussed, the moderators over at Facebook are not exactly leftist, seeing as how they're suppressing a lot of left content. I was talking to someone on my call-in show last night who was mentioning that she's a part of uh, some, some maybe it was an environmental group. Oh, no, it was a women's, it was like a, an, an abortion rights group. And that Facebook is basically suppressing anybody um, from promulgating messaging around abortion because it's considered to be a certain kind of political mm -hmm. content that can't be boosted by advertising dollars. So that's a whole separate that's thing. That's the that moderators. I was talking about the fact checkers. But the people on both sides, I think, of the political spectrum are being censored by Facebook in meaningful ways. But to your earlier point, I do think that there is a huge difference with Wikipedia because Wikipedia... It, it can delete and fully change content. It can take down content that isn't right. Like take out, you know, since I remember once in college, you know, my friend changed, you know, uh, Yoko Ono's profile to insert herself all the way through it and make her like the, the star right, of her life. Right. But back in the day, things like that could linger for a few hours before getting caught, right. you know, and, and we'll, they will take it down, you know. Right. But I don't think that in a Twitter context, are we saying that you, verified users will have the opportunity to remove other people's tweets? If they do, that seems to be a significant departure from the culture of the site. And yeah. if they don't, I'm really struggling to figure out how this pattern of replying, 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 and contextualizing other people's tweets isn't just Twitter. Fair point. <laughs> I mean, it is, just, it is just Twitter, but with more of a framing of... Uh, of uh, and also the, uh, there will be ways to specifically respond to the tweet. Uh, like I, I had a, they gave me a demo about the program, oh. so you can you can say like, uh, well, here's why I think this is misleading, and you can include a link, and you can like you're encouraged to include links. So it's a, it's a bit more. How many characters do you get? I don't I don't remember. It's it's a bit there's a bit more prompting. Does it look visually different than just a, like a reply yeah, tweet? It looks visually different than just a reply. Is it associated? Is it like connected to the original tweet as opposed yes. to being down thread? Yes. And so there's there... an idea. I think their idea is that it will look like replies tend to just be snarky and attacky. And the idea is that this will not degenerate in the same way. Because but why? It's... Why can't verified people, as a verified person, I can attest to being snarky and glib. Right. So right. <laughs> what, is, what is actually going to cause that cultural shift? When you're, but when you're using Birdwatch, it's just the format is slightly different. And instead, it, it, it's not going to reward you for snark. You're going to be rewarded. It won't reward. For that ain't it, chief. Yeah. That kind of reply. Yeah, that's the, well, because then the idea is people will rate that reply as not valuable. There's like a valuableness level rating. I see. Kind of thing. And if you get it sufficiently downvoted, does it right. disappear? It doesn't or... disappear. It just, I think it goes down further or something like that. So it's like Reddit. Yeah, a little bit like that. I mean, it might backfire horribly, but. Is more interesting to me the power. To, if it was actually a case where like blue checkmark people could go in and edit tweets, or they were the only people who have the power, like that, that kind of thing. To the extent that's what she was describing, 
not not good. Yeah, we're we're with you on that one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, When asked about Hunter Biden's business dealings in Ukraine, Yankovic actually ended up connecting the dots pretty well. Let's watch this. The the accusation is that Hunter Biden, in serving on the board of a Ukrainian company, which you know he is allowed to do, he was not the only foreign expert serving on on the board of a Ukrainian company, was involved in some corrupt behavior of that company. This company has been investigated for a long time. Burisma is the name of the company. Uh, there's never been any indication that Hunter Biden was involved in anything untoward. Uh, there are questions about whether he should have taken that board appointment, um, given his his father's role as you know the Obama administration's main emissary to Ukraine. But that's not necessarily something that Joe Biden has control over. It certainly has nothing to do with uh, with with Joe Biden's policies toward Ukraine. Um, and this has, you know, spun into a whole other host of of nonsense, basically, that Joe Biden withheld aid to Ukraine in order to get a resolution to uh, this investigation into Burisma and get his son out of the limelight. Oh, my God, that's. That was really bad. First of all, foreign expert? He's not a foreign expert. He has a last name. (laughs) The Biden name. Biden likes to talk about how powerful and and, uh, full of trust and hope that the name is. She was not being nearly as cautious as she needs to be with the language that there was nothing untoward or nothing unethical. There were no problems with it. Allegedly, maybe. Of course it's untoward. The fact that we're talking about it, the fact that... The vice president of the United States of America, who has also had this diplomatic relationship with Ukraine, had a son who was not qualified in any capacity to sit on anybody's board, sitting on a board and drawing a significant income for those services, is on its face untoward. Right. What we don't know is the specifics of why. As his father was still significantly happened. involved in the political process. Right. Was going from a vice president to president. Right. Now, I think if there is really no there there, then there should be a more fulsome conversation about what was going on. And I think the more information folks get about that could help people, you know, clear clear up what on its face is not going away because right. it is obviously, it obviously looks like a conflict of interest. Right. And, if, and I'm sorry, if this were a Trump administration official, Democrats would be clawing their eyes out to, to make this a national issue. There would be imp- talk of impeachment over this kind of a thing. Yeah, look, I'm open, I guess, to the argument that that maybe this is more more trivial than Republicans are making it out to be. We certainly don't know enough to make that determination yet. The idea that it's crazy to contemplate that that there is something really troubling here is not something a disinformation czar should be maintaining. That is itself disinformation, as these people always inevitably end up spreading the very sorts of lies they claim to be policing. Do we know anything about the context of these recordings? Were they meant to be public? I don't know. Well, they didn't look very private. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, on one hand, terrifying to think that these are conversations happening behind closed doors, but also terrifying in a different way in terms of how much hubris is in the room if these are right. the kinds of conversations that are happening happening publicly, that they don't even understand how this sort of thing would be perceived and how it would undermine the credibility of their project. I was just uh, waiting for her to break into song. <laughs> You liked it. Everyone has to acknowledge that after listening to it two or three times, they're kind of on board with her musical theater talent. No, 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 no. The world might be a better place if she steps away from politics and back toward musical theater. You know, I think any number... The world would be a better place if all the musical theater people could exit to a different planet, perhaps. Maybe our our new alien visitors can just... (laughs) 
escort them. Where that's, that's why they haven't landed. We haven't big. had first contact because they heard too much musical theater. <laughs> that would not out. surprise me. If I was an alien and I heard these show I would just, I would buzz right off. All right. Well, uh, well, not all musical theater kids. I'm a huge fan. As an acapella kid, I can't talk too much okay. crap. All right. We got we to gotta get out of here. We'll have more rising after this. Maybe. I might be gone. <laughs> A new report reveals that a company with an early contract to produce coronavirus vaccine doses hid evidence of problems. The New York Times is reporting that Emergent Biosolutions, the company hired to produce these vaccine doses, concealed quality control problems from FDA inspectors in February 2021, six weeks before it alerted federal officials that 15 million doses had been contaminated. The report, which was released Tuesday by the House Committee on Oversight and Reform and the Select sub Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis, sheds light on emergent executives' own worries about deficiencies in the company's quality control systems at its Baltimore plant. Now, according to the Times report, House Democrats said that nearly 400 million doses of coronavirus vaccine manufactured by emergent had been destroyed due to poor quality control. Emergent disputes that claim that 400 million vaccine doses were rendered unusable and refutes the allegation that it knowingly misled the FDA. So not good. Um, I, I mean, I do want the FDA, if it's going to do anything, don't give me that look. I was waiting, I saw I was that waiting what your take was going to be here because the whole point here, the, the, the malpractice is that they were dis allegedly not disclosing. Right failed vaccines to the FDA. Well, who gets to produce the vaccines and what funding they get to do it is tightly monitored by the government. So they sh should make sure that the people we are, that the people that the government is entrusting to do this are actually doing a good job. And maybe this shows the bad judgment of the FDA getting swindled by these incompetent morons <laughs> who wasted hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine. So who in this scenario should be monitoring the quality of yeah, the, the drugs? Well, the FDA. Okay. Yeah. So we, we're here for it. We support the FDA in these limited contexts. Li limited contexts. They should yeah. regulate vac vaccines, but not baby formula. They, can, they should be more permissible about what people are allowed to take. They can, they can say, here is what we think about this product. That's up to you. Instead of a, you can't consume this because we know better than you do. So this vaccine is tainted. This baby formula is tainted. But you can still use it if you'd like. Well, we... I would absolutely say that. And we have to, we have to consider, again, I, I said this when I talked about it, we have to consider whether the, the harm is greater from not allowing, like we have to look at the, the road not taken, the, the harm from not giving people swifter access to medicine, baby formula, et cetera. Even if, there, even if we allow a slight harm of this was compromised or this is bad, we, we can't just ignore if there's might be a much greater harm of it taking, you know, if it takes months longer for people to get vaccine or food, like people will die because of that. But we're, you know, you have, it's a little bit of like a, yeah, that's a that's an interesting trolley point. problem, a kill six people versus two people thing, but we do have to contemplate those things. The, the delays, the inaction, like that has a cost. It's not just, well, it just takes us more time to make sure everything's safe and, and fine, but waiting longer, hurts people too. Yeah, so to that point, what do you make of the fact that, you know, prior, I mean, it's easy to forget about now that we are, you know, a year into having vaccines, but a year plus ago, we were in a world where there were much bigger risks to getting COVID. Right. Uh, the vaccines really cut into mortality, although we have recently hit the 
you know, million death mark, which is pretty significant and galling uh, given how few people comparatively die each year from something like the regular flu. Um, there was a lot of pressure back in the spring of 2021 especially on the Biden administration who had campaigned on, you know, ending COVID and meaningfully behaving differently than Donald Trump would in this in the situation to get COVID vaccines out to the public. Mm -hmm. And there were there I think there was a cost benefit that was being decided at the time, who knows rightly or wrongly about how quickly to push vaccines out versus how long to wait and study their effects. While in the interim, there was a cost in terms of people's lives who were dying right. from not being vaccinated. Didn't it like it made me furious at the time when, you know, there were so many doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine sitting in warehouses in the United States, not being used. Not, we weren't using them. We actually had no plan to use them. We'll put them on a ship to Brazil then. I mean, somebody should have access to these. And even if, you know, they, and they say we have to do so much testing, we have to do so much. Sure. But, you know, think of, you know, a 95-year-old person at that stage for the, you know, for the, for the original infection, maybe Delta too. Now we're, you know, we're dealing with more mild strains, but like, you know, a person in their nineties who is going to get, who got COVID a, a year, a, two years ago, they, they were, it was going to be bad for them. Mm -hmm. They're, they had a much, much greater mortality risk. So you have to weigh that against, well, we haven't decided that this vaccine's completely safe, but like, but, but not get, but getting the disease is really not safe for them. Mm -hmm. So is there any, you know, contemplation about that kind of thing? No, but I'm saying I, I agree yeah. with you. I think it's a difficult decision that people have to make, that, that governments have to make. But it does seem to me that there's a parallel between saying, um, you know, we're going to push maybe COVID, the COVID vaccines without perhaps, you know, as much testing. You, you, basically, you want us to get COVID vaccines out the door. I want to let people make their choice. I want to let people decide. Not the government. I want to let people decide. The government can tell people what it thinks is best practices and what it thinks is best science. They're welcome to weigh in on that. But unfortunately, and, and the CDC is frankly worse, has become the default policymaker on all, not just for vaccines, but for masks, for social distancing, for remember what someone, I saw someone tweet a photo the other day of the, uh, the stupid, can you believe we were walking through like grocery store aisles, like counter, like, this is an aisle you only walk this way in. This is an aisle you only walk this way in. And that was coming from the CDC. It's just ridiculous. It's just so stupid. But everybody did. And, and they, they, had, they do technically have just recommendations powers, not actually. They have some enforcement power. But we defaulted to, well, it's, they just became de facto enforcers. That is not something I want. Yeah. I mean, there was stuff that was obviously silly and wrong. There was stuff that was so COVID theater. And, and then there were, was advice that I think was good that continues not to be taken, like the efficacy of higher quality masks which was downplayed early in the pandemic. By the CDC? By the CDC. They said any mask, just get a mask, any mask. And what confuses me about some of this COVID discourse that we have is that there's all of this frustration about the idea of the government lying to us. Mm -hmm. And the generalized reaction is to say, well, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to adopt any COVID production, pr protections because the, COVID has the, sorry, the government has lied to us about it. But some of the valence of the government's lies has been lying about the efficacy of some of the protections. It's gone both ways. 
And it's interesting to me that the frustration with the government and the misrep misrepresentation hasn't caused the bulk of, I think, you know, whether you want, you want to call them COVID skeptics, that's not the right word, but people who are distrustful, it hasn't caused them to say, the government lied to me that, that these things would protect me and it's keeping them from themselves. Therefore, I'm going to adopt more of these policies. I'm going to stock up on the high quality masks. I'm going to you know, distrust that the Biden campaign is telling everybody to go back to work after five days, even if they're still testing positive. I'm going to distrust all of that because obviously their interests are aligned with big business and keeping the economy going, which obviously has some benefit to us as well. But their interests aren't really our individual health and safety. That doesn't seem to be the reaction to the government lying to us in, in, in all of these multiplicity of directions about COVID. I mean, I would, I would say it should be. I, right. We shouldn't just ignore the Times... Right. They, I agree. They've, they've lied in both directions. And that should make us have, put more onus on the individual to decide what is the right. In, in consultation with your doctors or you know, whatever experts you think are knowledgeable, maybe consider what other uh, health, health, health guy, you know, official, other country, the, the, the authorities in Europe did not recommend nearly as intense uh, masking of school children as we did in the U.S., uh, we, so, you know, all, the, all these comparisons to why can't we be more like Europe, like totally collapsed on the masking in schools front. But so I, I think people should, if, and if people want to choose a, because people are different, a, a healthy, you know, 20 or 30 year old, it should, it makes sense to have a vastly different risk threshold than an, an unhealthy or overweight person of the same age or of a person in their 50s or certainly 60s, 70s, 80s, that makes total sense. Um, and, and people should, so people should use their best judgment and they should listen to the health officials, they should listen to their doctors, and that's, that should be that. And the same logic should extend to abortion rights. Um, okay, it should, it should... <laughs> so we... we... <laughs> Well, I, look, I, ha I, have a, I have said I have a range of views on, on that issue. I, I hear that argument. I think that argument would have been more compelling, as I've said, if uh, a progressives, liberals, Team Blue didn't actually, I mean, no, health, health decisions are made by the you, CDC. So, I don't know that it's fair to know. conflate what Team Blue or, or you know, uh, Anthony Fauci says with what millions of women across the country whose beliefs like mine are entirely consistent on these, on well, these issues as being but the, against the, mandates. But the COVID stuff wasn't really put to... Against um, abortion restrictions. Abortion is now going to be, if Roe v. Wade goes the way we expect, it's going to be voted on by... Uh, it's going to be decided by state legislatures. Um, so much of this bad COVID stuff I'm complaining about was done, administered by bureaucrats without any accountability or any, anything having to do with the elections process. Yeah, let's put it to a vote. Let's see how many people in which states actually want to mass toddlers forever. Yeah, I, I'd be well, willing to have that, have that vote. If they want to say that there's a constitutional right to privacy to keep you from having to wear a mask, I am open to that argument, but I am more committed to the idea that there's a constitutionally established right to privacy and, bo privacy and bodily freedom the, that has gotten us uh, gay marriage rights, contraceptive rights, uh, and racial marriage rights. If this so-called constitutional right to privacy had protected uh, those of us who didn't want to follow all of the insane COVID norms, I'd probably be more enthusiastic about the whole idea right now. It seems like we might have come to a compromise position here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, a quick programming note. If you are missing Kim Iverson, our dear friend today, we are too. She tested positive for COVID and she's feeling just fine, but we'll be taking a few days to rest. So please send her your well wishes and we will do so as well. 
Now, tomorrow on Rising, candidate for New York Lieutenant Governor Anna Maria Archila joins us to discuss the vote to protect Roe v. Wade and next steps for the Democratic Party. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And while you're at it, subscribe to The Hill's Just In channel for more original content and coverage of developing news throughout the day. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So listen there, and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks for joining. Bye-bye.